Well, if you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open it up, turn to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 18 this morning. We've been working through this book for quite some time, and we are back in chapter 18, looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning, and have entitled the sermon, Persevering in Gospel Ministry. Persevering in Gospel Ministry, Acts chapter 18, we'll look at verses 1 through 8 in our time together this morning. Here's what we read by Luke, the author of Acts. He says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he, was, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Father, we're grateful this morning to be able to dive back in our study throughout the book of Acts. We pray that you would continue to encourage us, to enlighten us, and help us to learn what you want us to learn from this narrative, from this incredible venture of Paul as he continues in his missionary efforts here. Pray that we would also be willing to persevere at any cost for the, for the, uh, for the joy of people coming and knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us this morning to learn what you want us to learn so that we can live it out in our lives day by day. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, the day after Christmas would normally have been a quiet day in Washington, D.C., especially on Capitol Hill. But on December the 26th, 1941, things were very different It was only 19 days after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and both the Senate chamber and the, and the, uh, the Senate chamber and the overflow galley were packed to hear the famous British Prime Minister Winston Churchill address a joint session of the United States Congress. With the Capitol packed and police and soldiers everywhere, the lectern bristling with microphones, and the glare of unusually bright lights in the chamber for the film cameras, Churchill started his 30-minute address. Churchill wasted no time getting to his central theme. Britain was standing alone, but reeling. Most of Europe lay prostrate under the Nazi hill. Hitler was well on his way to Moscow. Half of the American Navy had been sunk at the bottom of Pearl Harbor, and there was little or no air force to rise to the nation's defense. He therefore delivered a stern denunciation of the Japanese and the German menace and warned about the many disappointments and unpleasant surprises that await us encountering them. And at the heart of the prime minister's address was a famous question To his listeners, in light of the Japanese aggression, Winston Churchill asked, 
What kind of people do they think that we are? Is it possible that they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world would never forget? Churchill was asking the question, what kind of people do they think that we are? In other words, do they think that we are quitters? Do they think that we will that easily give up? Do they think that we don't have the perseverance to continue even under the most trying of circumstances? It was Dr. Raymond Edmond who used to say to his students at Wheaton College, it is always too difficult to quit. As Charles Spurgeon reminded his congregation in London, by perseverance, the snail will reach the ark. As Christians, we got to be reminded that we're in it for the long game. Whether it be a war, whether it be a hard class, whether it be our gospel testimony, we're in it for the long game. We're not looking for an easy out or a quick fix. We are not attracted to fads in the ministry. We are committed to preaching the gospel, whether rain or shine, whether praise or persecution, and whether life or death. And that is certainly the mindset of the Apostle Paul. At this point in his second missionary journey, we see him transition from Athens to Corinth. So let's back up just for a minute and see what's happened so far in Paul's second missionary journey. So really, you remember that after revisiting the areas of Derby, Lystra, and the region of Galatia, he ventured into a new territory called Troas. It was there that he received that Macedonian call from a man that he saw in a vision who was requesting help. And Paul had concluded that this was the call for him to preach the gospel in Philippi, which was the leading city in that district. And so Paul preached the gospel, but he was arrested there in Philippi and placed in prison. Paul was also chased out of Thessalonica and he was persecuted by the Jews who followed him into the area of Berea. And after Silas and Timothy were left there in Berea, Paul traveled to Athens where he gave an outstanding sermon on the greatness of God as creator, the nearness of God throughout the gospel relationship we can have with him, and the righteousness of God that is given to us through the resurrection power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end of that sermon, we saw last time we were in this text, look at verses 32 and 33 of chapter 17, after he preached the sermon there on Mars Hill. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. And so we ended chapter 17 realizing that some mocked the good news of the gospel. Some pushed back and said, we'll think about it, but not yet. And yet some did come to saving faith and true belief. And through all of his adventures and persecutions, we're seeing here that Paul is persevering. That's the theme of, of his mission throughout Acts. Paul just keeps persevering, and God has called us to persevere as well in our own gospel influence, in our own gospel ministry. And we are not called to be wimps. We are not called to be quitters. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. And whatever you're facing in your life today, let me encourage you to persevere in gospel ministry. There are gospel opportunities in the midst of physical trials. There are gospel opportunities in the midst of financial difficulties. 
There are gospel opportunities in the midst of relational strife. Each one of those uh, trials bring us back to Christ, back to the gospel, and we're able to look to heaven to be reminded of God's goodness and share God's goodness with us in the midst of our tough times. And so may God give us that kind of perseverance, that kind of dedication, that kind of resolve to love Christ no matter what. This morning, I want to give you three headings about how Paul continued to persevere in gospel ministry. We'll see, number one, Paul's co-workers with him in Corinth, verses one through two. And then we'll look at a second heading, Paul's bivocational ministry, verses three through four. And then we'll end our time together this morning, number three, Paul's full-time ministry in verses five through eight. Let's start off with number one, Paul's co-workers in Corinth, verses one through two. Your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, says Corinth was an immoral city. It was an immoral city. After this, verse one says, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Corinth. Obviously, we have a few letters written to Corinth, first and second Corinthians. There was another letter that was lost It's a significant city, and it presided over an isthmus, which is a narrow strip of land between two bodies of water. This isthmus was between the Gulf of Corinth and the Saronic Gulf, which gave this Roman colony an incredible strategic importance. And rather than brave the dangerous journey around the Cape Malia at the southernmost tip of Achaia, ship owners were known to have taken their vessels and dragged them across this isthmus on wooden rollers. The city also controlled land between the mainland of Greece and the semi-attached mass of land known as the Peloponnesus. Ancient travelers called it the Bridge of Greece. Therefore, whoever controlled Corinth, which is located on that isthmus that we're talking about, also controlled the flow of trade between the east and west by sea and the north and south by land. And as Rome swept into this place of the world as it expanded its empire, a Roman general destroyed the city of Corinth, exterminating all the men, and he sold the, men, uh, the, the women rather, and children into slavery. The city at that time laid in ruins for about 100 years until in 46 BC when Julius Caesar resurrected Corinth at that time as a colony for Roman freedmen and as a means for preserving the isthmus for Roman interests. By the time of Paul, this was a Roman colony of approximately 200,000 people. Corinth worshiped the emperor, it upheld Roman law, and it pulsated with the international trade It hosted athletic games, it beckoned pagan worshipers, and it thrived on slavery. The city became a popular refuge for Jews, fleeing the expulsion which Emperor Claudius gave in AD 49. And so a synagogue of an unknown size formed in the midst of this pagan idolatry right there in Corinth, and most of the city seemed to be seeking an immediate fortune while entertaining themselves with unbridled pleasure. As one would expect from a city supported by commerce and travelers, Corinth was marked by extravagance and by licentious living. It was the center for the worship of Aphrodite, the goddess of love who promoted immorality in the name of religion. The Aphrodite temple loomed some 1,900 feet overhead at the summit of the high point of the city. 
and over a thousand female temple prostitutes enticed worshipers from the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire. So infamous was the city's debauched reputation that Aristophanes coined the word to Corinthianize, and to Corinthianize meant to practice immorality. Perhaps no city on earth presented Paul a greater challenge than that of this Las Vegas-like sin city of Corinth. Don't go to Vegas, all right? No, I'm just kidding. All right, so as Paul arrived into Corinth, he felt great discouragement, as recorded in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. The combination of only limited success in Athens, loneliness, and the prospect of facing this city with its commerce and vice accounts for the weakness and the fear that gripped the apostle as he arrived and began his evangelistic work. In fact, you'll see that over in 1 Corinthians. Look there with me, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it describes Paul writing a letter to them later talks about how he felt when he first entered this city. So it's a grand city, but it's also grand in its sin and its pagan idolatry. And so there in writing to Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter two, we read it already in our pastoral reading this morning, verse three, he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's what he's talking about. When I first arrived in Corinth, it was a difficult time for me. I was by myself, I was facing this metropolis of pagan idolatry, and so he found it to be rather difficult. In fact, if you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we see another comment he makes about how he felt when he entered Corinth. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7, when he wrote this letter to the, the believers in Thessalonica. Uh, he, he wrote it from Corinth. And here's what it says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress. So he's in Corinth, he's writing to the Thessalonians, and he's saying, in all our distress, and affliction. We have been comforted about you through your faith. So he's comforted by the Thessalonians' faith, but he's not so comforted while he's in Corinth. It was a difficult time. It was the faith of the Bereans that was a beacon of hope even in the darkness while he was there in Corinth. And besides his discouragement, Paul may have also been physically ill perhaps from the lingering effects of the ill treatment which he had received in Philippi when he was in jail, remember at midnight. Physical weakness often makes discouragement even worse. But we know from what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, that it's the God of all comfort who never left him. The God of all comfort indeed does comfort us in our afflictions. And so we can praise God that he did not leave Paul in his downtrodden condition, but he encouraged Paul, he empowered Paul, he enabled Paul to have a meaningful ministry as Paul persevered in gospel ministry. My friends, the same is true of you and of me today. God will give us strength in the midst of our battle. When you feel like you're all alone, when you feel like you're facing a society that is overcoming the popular mood of the day, we do live in a similar culture, right? We live in a sick society. We live in a sinful culture. We live in the midst of idolatry and immorality and insurgency. We live in a time and a place where sexual sin of all kinds has not only been adopted by our culture, but it's been exalted and it's been celebrated. We live in a world that needs Christ. 
And while at times we may be discouraged and at times we may feel overwhelmed, like what Paul was feeling when he entered Corinth, we also have the light of Christ who dwells inside of us. We have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit that gives us courage and he gives us conviction and he gives us the words that we need to speak in any and in every hour of our lives. And when we're not sure of what to do next, we simply need to persevere in our gospel ministry. We need to be soldiers in God's army. We have our part to play. We have a race to run. We have a mission to fulfill. And what is our mission, you ask? Well, it's the ministry of reconciliation that Paul proclaimed so powerfully. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, he's working through what he's facing in Corinth. And as he writes 2 Corinthians, he reminds them this is what his mission is. This is what our mission is as Christians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ, that is in Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is Paul's conviction. This ought to be our conviction. We're called, whether you're a pastor or a missionary or a Christian, we're all ministers of the gospel. We're all ambassadors of Christ. And we all have the same mission to be proclaiming reconciliation to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This was Paul's calling. This is our calling. We are to persevere in gospel ministry. That's what's happening with Paul in Corinth. We also see second in verse two that Aquila and Priscilla were an immaculate team. We're talking about his co-workers in Corinth. We've seen now the debauchery of Corinth. Now we're looking at a few new co-workers that are going to come and join him there. And in verse 2 it says, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Now, remember, Paul is shouldering this burden and this great responsibility alone until Silas and Timothy would arrive from Macedonia. But he found this Jew named Aquila, a native from Pontius, who had recently come with Priscilla, his wife, because Claudius had excommunicated all of the Jews from Rome. And so he found great companionship with this new couple, not only because of their Jewish background, but also because of their common occupation, as verse 3 says, that they too were tent makers by trade. This encouraging couple is mentioned six times in the scripture. In four out of the six, Priscilla is mentioned first. This is likely pointing to the thought that she was a Roman woman of higher social rank than Aquila. It could also be pointing to the idea that she was a little bit more prominent of the two in the way that she was gifted to serve the church. And Paul always referred to her by her formal name, Prisca, while Luke always refers to us, to, to her, in, her, in the diminutive form, Priscilla. 
So Paul was pleased to make their acquaintance, Aquila and Priscilla. And his new friends not only shared again in his tent-making trade, but they also shared with him in the faith. They opened their home to him. They had become Christians somewhere in their journey from Rome to Corinth. And it's, it's evident here, by the way, Paul describes them and interacts with them that it seems that they've already came to saving faith. And it also seems like somehow they, they're owners of a, of a sizable business when they employed Paul. And so Aquila and Priscilla provided a wonderful strength to the missionary and this working uh, friendship that they enjoyed confirms that Paul also was no rugged individualist. He, he enjoyed working with other Christians. He's constantly mentoring young men in his life and he's connecting with Lydia. And here he's connecting with uh, Aquila and Priscilla. He's constantly reaching out and fellowshipping with others. He, he longed to be with his brothers and his sisters in life and in ministry. And Aquila and Priscilla may have been uh, Christians already, I mentioned that, and while, while they, they, they certainly grew under Paul's tutelage and under Paul's I I encouragement to them, and it seems like they're growing stronger every day as they spend time there in Corinth. And in fact, I, I thought it was so interesting just to study for a little bit this week Aquila and Priscilla, not only because they have interesting names that kind of go together, uh, but about the fact that she was mentioned first and then him, which I said to you. So I just wanted to take a moment let me give you five things that we can learn from Aquila and Priscilla because I'm saying that they were an immaculate, they were an excellent, they were a praiseworthy couple who joined Paul in his ministry. And I think these five things will encourage you today. Five things about Aquila and Priscilla. You ready? Number one about, their, 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 about them is they enjoyed a dynamic marriage. They enjoyed a dynamic marriage. Each time Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned, they are mentioned together. How often do you see that in the Bible? Husband and wife together. Oftentimes we read about a great man after God's own heart or a great woman after God's own heart. Sometimes they're mentioned as a couple, but every time Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned in Scripture, they're mentioned together. At the end of this chapter, we read how they together took Apollos aside and filled in some theological gaps in his thinking. They, they worked as a team. And it seems that Paul couldn't think of one of them without mentioning the other, Aquila and Priscilla. Second thing we can observe about them is they had a remarkable influence. As I mentioned before, Priscilla is listed first in four of the six times that this couple is mentioned in Scripture. Again, and no doubt, might indicate that her ministry particularly stood out to the Christians, but this in no way should cause us to draw the conclusion that Aquila's ministry was insignificant. We shouldn't speculate that Priscilla dominated their marriage in an unhealthy or ungodly way. Instead, it's possible that Priscilla, like Lydia, was an important female figure in the early church, and her inclusion in Scripture here reminds us of another example of how godly women have played a significant role Role throughout church history. She's proof that the church's mission in Acts was not a male-dominated movement. Number three, they were strategically mobile. Aquila migrated to Italy from Pontius, which was on the southern shore of the Black Sea. When they were forced to leave Rome, he and his wife ended up in Corinth, they later undertook another move to Ephesus with Paul, where the church met in their house, and then eventually they returned to Rome, only to appear back in Ephesus once again. 
Aquila and Priscilla were sojourners whose movements together suggested that they didn't think of any one certain spot in this world as their home. Instead, they remained open to the will of God and to the mission of God, refusing to limit their lives to whatever might happen within a certain radius of their original hometown. While their vocation as tent makers may have contributed to their mobility, it was ultimately their commitment to following Jesus that caused them to go from city to city. Their experiences are a reminder that while the Lord may sometimes keep Christian couples in a certain place throughout their marriage, God may also take other couples all over the world for the purpose of ministering the gospel as a missionary or as a couple who's willing to go plant a church in a new area. God takes people from place to place. And the important thing is that Priscilla and Aquila, they're doing it together. They're going to move together. They're going to minister together. It wasn't one person at one place and one person in another place. They're together in their movement and they're willing to follow the Lord wherever he leads. Number four, they had an evangelistic passion. This married couple had Christ-centered passion. And because of that, Paul held them in the highest regard. In Romans chapter 16, verses three through four, Paul calls this pair co-workers in Christ Jesus who risked their own necks on his account. This commendation was no cheap compliment. Paul knew the couple well. He worked with them. He traveled with them. He stayed with him. And whatever he meant by this phrase, they risked their own necks, he literally owed his life to these risk takers. And since Paul calls them co-workers in Christ Jesus, we must conclude that they did what they did because of their love for the Lord. What about you? As a married couple today, in the ministry. You may both have jobs. You may both be busy doing various things, even a mom homeschooling your own children. You may be in a busy season of life with kids or work or activities or taking care of your parents or just trying to make it through life. But in all that you do, we have a model here in Aquila and Priscilla that is given to us. They, they work together in Christ Jesus, whether they were making tents are planning to host people in their home. They did everything in, for, and through Jesus. This couple viewed all their work in relationship to him. And I pray that God would raise up many Christ-exalting couples just like this in our church. Number five pretty much goes without saying. We've hinted at it a few times. They were graciously hospitable. Whenever Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in scripture, they're opening up their home to others as they did for Paul here in Corinth. They instructed Apollos in their home later in the same chapter when they lived in Ephesus and in Rome, churches met in their house. It is likely that they were people of means as we discussed with their business, but they intended to use their sizable dwelling for the benefit of others. These ordinary Christians sought to graciously and to regularly throughout their lives to show hospitality. And in our busy modern culture today, we have to fight about being overcome with so many challenges to practicing hospitality. There's the, the overcommitment of our schedules. There's the intentional isolation. There's addiction to comfort. There's selfishness. There's pride. There's fear of man. And there's wanting recognition for our service and following 
the, the lead of this first century couple could help us have that right mindset to kind of reorient what our marriages are about to be a picture of Christ and his love for the church, but also to be a witness and to be hospitable, opening up our homes so people can view the marriage that God's given to us that would honor Christ. And we see here that their, their actions demonstrate what happens when Christians understand the grace of Jesus. The, the grace of the one who welcomes us into God's family and is preparing a place for us. And so I want to just encourage you this morning, wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, look for ways to practice hospitality, whether that involves welcoming, welcoming strangers or hosting missionaries or sharing a meal with others from our church. It's a great model of these co-workers of Aquila and Priscilla who were there with Paul in Corinth doing a great work for the cause of Christ. So that ends our, our first heading. We've now seen Paul's co-workers in Corinth. Let's move on to number two, Paul's bivocational ministry, verses three through four. Your next blank says, hard working with his hands. We're talking about Paul here in verse three. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. I mean, is there any harder worker uh, than we see in the man, Paul? I mean, this man was always on the go. He, he never seems to miss a chance to preach somewhere. He, he's writing faith-building letters during his downtime. And oh, by the way, he makes tents. And Paul was a bivocational minister of the gospel. That means that he got his main source of income from a regular job, but he also was a minister of the gospel. And there are many places in the Bible where Paul mentions that he supported himself. But only here are we told about his trade. The term tent maker could be used to understood also as a leather worker. And since tents were often made from leather, this description certainly fits. Some also suggest that Paul may have manufactured tents by using goat skin and even goat hair. And regardless of exactly how Paul did what he did in making tents, he was similar to the other Jewish rabbis in the sense of he knew how to work with his hands. It was, it was not just his mind that was at work, it was his hands that were at work. And it was customary for all the Jewish boys, even rabbis' sons, to learn of their father's trade. And Paul had likely learned this skill from his father, who, who worked with his hands and worked with tents, no doubt. And he was able to do what others have to do. He was able to learn to make a living in a secular vocation. And while in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul encourages believers to compensate pastors, he didn't want his only support to always come from the church. He, he never begged for money. He never demanded money. He never preached for money. And this is to set himself up and against false teachers who are regularly demanding money in order to be paid. And so oftentimes Paul says, hey, while I deserve to be supported, at the same time, I want to serve as an example, and I never want to be a distraction or an obstacle for the gospel's progress. So we see Paul's a hard-working dude, and not only was he hard-working with his hands, the next blank says he was heavenly-minded with his speech, verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so we see here in verse four, once again, this was his custom on this missionary journey. Paul is beginning his work of evangelism there in the synagogue. He, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. 
And as we've looked at this word before, the word reason means that he informed or he instructed, but it also shows a willingness to engage in debate and defense and to argue for the sake of the gospel. I mean, it wasn't like the red carpet was always laid out open for Paul where they just always invited him in to say whatever he wanted to say. He, he had to fight for those opportunities. And when he had those opportunities, he used them to the glory of God. And we read this kind of mentality in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season to rebu- reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and, and teaching Uh, The focus of his preaching was always preaching Jesus as the Messiah and as the one who crucified and and, and was crucified and resurrected on the third day. In 1 Corinthians 2, again, we've looked at that a couple of times. He says, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He said, I decided to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. That was his whole point. That's his whole life and passion. I want to talk to you about Christ. And he's really getting at here that that Jesus is the Christ. That's what we're reading there in verse 4. He's reasoning with them. He's persuading them. And he's teaching them that the Christ was Jesus. And so Paul was out to persuade Jews and Greeks. He was out to persuade men and women. He was out to persuade slaves and the free men. He was out to persuade any and every human being. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so it is with Paul. He's proclaiming Christ. He preached the gospel. He reasoned through the scriptures. He persuaded with his speech. He told them to repent and to put their faith in Jesus. And all along, he's leaving the results up to God. Sometimes, It may be the hard work that we do with our hands that begins to open opportunities for us to speak of the gospel with our mouths. That's what Paul's doing. He's not not mooching off of the church. He's willing to work hard. And if you're lazy at work or cutting corners at work or you're devious with your dealings, don't expect others to see Christ in you. He can show, we, we need to be showing people that we're saved by our work ethic. We then have, in a sense, earned the right to say that it's only in Christ's strength and for his glory that we do what we do. So many opportunities come from being faithful in your job and in your vocation that you then have the opportunity and the platform to say things about God that people wanna hear and listen to because they have a, a little bit of a respect for who you are as a citizen, as a worker, as a neighbor, as a person. And so here, we're seeing first Paul's co-workers in Corinth. Second, we've seen how Paul has a bivocational ministry for a season where he's working both with his hands as well as reasoning in the synagogue. But let's look at third now. He then transitions into full-time ministry. He transitions into full-time ministry. We read your next blank there. It says extra help enabled Paul to be completely devoted in the word. Verse five, here comes the Calvary. Here comes Silas and Timothy. So he's got Aquila and Priscilla. He's been without Silas and Timothy while he was in Athens when he left Berea. And now he's in Corinth and he was feeling a little discouraged, but God provided Aquila and Priscilla. And now Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. And because of that, look what the middle of verse five says, Paul was occupied with the word. 
testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And so we see here that the God of all comfort met Paul's need for companionship, again, not only through the new ministry friends, Aquila and Priscilla, but through bringing back two of his familiar ministry partners, Silas and Timothy. And when they arrived, notice how verse five says, Paul was occupied with the word. That word occupied means to captivate your attention completely. It means to be totally absorbed with something. It means to be seized with, to be affected with. The bottom line is that he's holding fast to the word of God. And part of the emphasis here is that with the arrival of his missionary companions, Paul is now freed up to focus full-time on the ministry before him. He, he was working bivocationally, but now, as the NASB says, he began devoting himself completely to the word. That's awesome. I love that. It's a time to work with your hands. But he got to a point in time when God said, hey, look, you got enough help now. I need you to go full-time, devoting all of your effort to the work that's to be done in Corinth. And so the work that he's doing is he's using the Old Testament scripture in the verse five, and he's solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now remember, children, Christ is not Jesus's last name, right? It is a title. Anytime we say Jesus Christ, it's Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the son of God, the son of man, this, it's, it's talking about Jesus is that great prophet that Moses talked about in Genesis 18, 15. And he's just simply saying that to the Jews, everything you've been waiting for, for all of your life, is now here in Christ. He is the Christ. He is this divine being who has come to save his people from his sins. And we see Jesus using scriptures to teach that he himself was the Christ, like on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. So taking the Old Testament scripture and applying everything that was said about the Messiah to the Messiah. And we see Jesus again acknowledging that the scriptures bear witness about him as the source of eternal life. In John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. And so he's trying to connect. He's like, hey, you keep looking to the scriptures for eternal life, but the scriptures are to point to me. They're the living word. And so don't just get stuck in an old covenant scripture mentality. Realize that the old covenant's to point to the new covenant that points to the person and work of Jesus Christ who came to shed his blood to save his people from their sins so that you can have new life. And there's really no greater authority of that than in the scriptures. The scriptures are what are used to proclaim that Jesus is indeed the Christ. This is the same way and the same truth that Paul learned the hard way on the road to Damascus. Remember, he's persecuting uh, all the Christians. He goes to Damascus, has special permission from the governor to arrest and to even kill Christians. And in Acts 9, verses three through five, now he, when he was on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And when he says Lord, he immediately realizes that the person talking to him is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the anointed one. He says, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is Paul learning and understanding for the first time that Jesus is the Christ. And that becomes the crux of his ministry, that the Christ is Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ. And so Paul now knows Jesus is the Christ. And so he uses scripture. He uses his testimony. He uses his logical argumentation to point to this fact. And when we want to prove something, though, the ultimate authority that we use is the word of God. We don't primarily use science to point to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. We don't primarily use logic to point to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. We don't primarily point to church history. We use the word of God, which is inspired, infallible, inerrant, and sufficient to teach us that Jesus is the Christ. In this statement, again, the end of verse five, he's teaching again that the Christ was Jesus. This statement means that only Jesus can save you from your sins. See, if he's divine, if he's God's son, if he's the Messiah, only Jesus can save you from your sins. This statement means that only Jesus can remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Only Jesus can remove your spots. Only Jesus can wash away your sins. Only Jesus can cleanse you of your iniquity. Only Jesus can wipe away your transgressions. Only Jesus can redeem you. Only Jesus can ransom you. Only Jesus can give you new life. Only Jesus can give you a second chance. Only Jesus can open your heart. Only Jesus can give you peace. Only Jesus can give you joy. Only Jesus can give you real purpose. Only Jesus can heal you. Only Jesus can fill you with his life-giving spirit. Only Jesus can make you a new creation. Only Jesus can make all things new. Only Jesus can change you. Only Jesus can give you a makeover from the inside out. Only Jesus can shut out the darkness, bring in the light, and save you by his power. And that's what he's doing. That's what he's teaching. If Jesus is not the Christ, then he has no power to do any of that. He's just a man. But because Jesus is the Christ, he saves you from your sin. He sanctifies you in your life. He satisfies you in your soul. It's only Jesus. And that's what Paul's preaching. And what was the result of this message we see in your next blank? There is opposition to this message of Jesus being the Christ. Opposition elicited a judgment and a change of direction. Look at verse six. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent for now I will go to the Gentiles. And so here, as so often happened when Paul shared the gospel with his countrymen, they rejected him. They opposed him. They reviled him. In fact, the word reviled is that strong word for that they blasphemed. They blasphemed what it was that Paul was saying about Jesus being the Christ. This means that they spoke against him in a disrespectful way that demeans, defames, and maligns. They were slanderous. They were irreverent. They were profane. And they organized themselves against Paul there in Corinth, and they, they rejected him and his message as a whole. The Jewish community said, we don't want it. We don't want you. We don't want your message of Christ. And so they, they, they opposed him. So Paul was left with no choice, realizing 
the futility of continuing to throw pearls before the swine, as the scripture says, he shook out his garments and he said, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent for now on I will go to the Gentiles. The shaking out of his garment, as you know, was a traditional and dramatic gesture of rejection. Jews who were returning from Gentile areas customarily shook the Gentile dust off their garments and out of their sandals. And so this act became a symbol of their hatred of non-Jews. And Paul's act now symbolizes his rejection of the Jews, an infuriating act he was now using against them. It also showed his abhorrence for their blasphemy. Paul didn't want the dust from the synagogue where the blasphemy had taken place to somehow cling to his clothes. And then Paul issues the shocking statement, your blood be on your heads. This statement is a judgment that the Jews were fully responsible for what they were doing. There is another phrase in the Bible that is sometimes used to say, you have blood on your hands. So we're going to quickly examine the two. Blood on your hands, blood on your head. Turn with me, if you will, to Ezekiel chapter 3. Let's first talk about blood on your hands. If you have blood on your hands, it means that you bear the responsibility for another's death because you were not faithful to warn them. And this image, again, comes from the watchmen on the city walls whose task it was to stay alert and to warn of coming danger. And so that's what's happening in Ezekiel chapter 3. Look at verses 17 and 19 to see it more clearly. Ezekiel 3:17 says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul." What is God saying here? He's saying and reminding Israel's leaders that they must warn the flock of opposing wickedness and the danger that they're facing. And if the shepherds of Israel do not warn the house of Israel, then the wicked person will still die for his own iniquity. But he does say here in Ezekiel 3.18 that his blood I will require at your hand. That means that you have some fault to own up to. That means you were not faithful to be the watchman that God called you to be. That does not mean that their eternal destiny weighs in the balance based on your obedience. But it does mean that you have not been faithful to discharge God's warning to God's people. There is a responsibility that we still have to warn people about their wickedness. And that's why the Bible says here that their blood will be on your hand. Now, Paul's using a different reference in the passage we're looking at in Acts 18. He says that they are going to have blood on their own heads. That's what he's saying to the Jews in Corinth, which means that they were to blame for their own judgment. 
You had the opportunity, he's saying, to be saved, but you turned it down. And so Paul's hands were clean. This is what Paul says even later in Acts, in chapter 20, verses 26 and 27. He says, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul can say this because he has been faithful to declare the message of the gospel. He has been a faithful watchman. He has declared the gospel. He has talked about the judgment of God. And so the Jews, therefore, had their blood on their own heads because they had rejected the truth. And I don't think they really even cared. This is the same way the Jews responded when Pilate washed his hands before the crowd and then speaking about the crucifixion, he said, see to it yourselves. And then in Matthew 27, 25, all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. So the unbelieving Jews are continuing to reap the consequence of rejecting Jesus as the Christ. And in our passage in Acts 18, Paul has now absolved himself from any guilt connected to their rejection. I wonder if you could say the same. I wonder if in your own life you could say that I don't bear any guilt because I've been a faithful watchman to warn others about Christ and about his judgment for those who reject his saving work on the cross. Let me be clear. You cannot be guilty for someone going to hell, but you can be guilty of not obeying God's clear command for us to call people to repentance. We all have a calling as Christ followers to tell others about Jesus. We have a responsibility to tell them that Jesus is the Christ. We have a responsibility to tell them that Jesus died and rose again so that they could have new life. And anytime we speak the gospel to unbelievers, we must tell them that they are to respond in repentance and faith and to the gospel message. So let's do our job and let's leave the results up to God. And if you need a little help doing that, we got packets of books out there that I told you about, a strategic way that you could grab a stack of five and say, you know what, I'm going to give out cookies and the cross. That's what I'm going to do this Christmas. I'm going to give out some baked goods and I'm going to give them this book and say, hey, I'd love for you to read this. I'd love to talk with you about how Christ is the true meaning of Christmas. Merry Christmas. Hope you have a great day. It's just one way. There's so many ways, but that's just one way that maybe you could say, you know what, I don't want to be guilty and have blood on my hands for not being faithful to declare the message of Christ. And of course, we don't wanna just be sharing Christ out of some motive of guilt. I'm not trying to guilt you today. I'm just trying to be faithful to what the scripture says about how serious it is for us to take our ministry and the perseverance in the ministry God's given us to hand. And so we see that at this point, Paul says that he will now go, here's the transition. He's like, all right, you guys rejected me as a synagogue, as a people, as a nation even, and now I'm gonna turn to the Gentiles. He's, he's saying that his primary focus from now on will be to the Gentiles. He has been faithful, he has been obedient, he has been earnest, and now it's time to move his ministry to focus from the Jews to the Gentiles. And then we see our last couple of verses, seven and eight, your last blank says, faithfulness in evangelism led to conversions. Verses seven and eight, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue 
Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Verses seven and eight certainly leave us with an encouraging ending for our message today. It seems that Titius Justus was a Gentile worshiper of God who lived next door to the synagogue. And we can tell from his name that he was a Gentile. The phrase worshiper of God has been used before in the Bible to talk about faithful Gentiles. Lydia, the Greek woman that we've mentioned from Philippi, was mentioned as a worshiper of God in Acts 16, 14. We could also uh, remember that Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, was a devout man who feared God. And so in this text, we're seeing that this man, Titius Justus, next to the synagogue, is believed to have been saved. This is likely the same man who was mentioned as Gaius in Romans 16.23. And again, in 1 Corinthians 1.14, we see his name mentioned where Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So these two men, verses 7 and 8, we're thinking both got saved at the same time. One's a Greek and one was the leader of the synagogue. His name was Crispus there in verse eight. He was actually the ruler of that local synagogue. And this is an astonishing conversion that must have sent shockwaves throughout the Corinthian Jewish community that one of their very best, the leader in fact of the synagogue was born again. And they likely, uh, this, this likely had a, a big impact on the fact that, that, that Christ was working in some hearts to bring them to saving faith so much so that they were willing to be baptized as a public declaration of changing from Judaism to Christianity. And in time, the church of Corinth was made up of many working class people and a few powerful people of noble birth. Paul preached the message of the cross to those on every social class and to every ethnicity. In fact, Turn with me to this last cross-reference of 1 Corinthians 1.27, just showing that Paul here at the end, we're seeing some, some big guys get saved, if you will, particularly the leader of the synagogue getting saved. And it's just a reminder that, that Paul, uh, really 1 Corinthians 1.27 through 31 summarizes the result of Paul's faithful evangelism in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1.27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." And so we see the impact, again, of Paul's ministry was there's not many wise, not many noble, but there were some, and there were a lot of common folk who were there, but those who turned from the wisdom of the world and they turned to Christ began to boast in the cross, which is what Paul's message was, began to boast in the resurrection, which is what Paul boasted, what he preached about. And so we see here in our passage for today, verses one through eight, Paul's work in Corinth, it started off rather slowly, didn't it? At first, we're just kind of talking about Corinth. We're talking about tent making. We're talking about Aquila and Priscilla. We had to look at all the cross-references to fill out more information about their life and ministry. But, but over time, while he's in Corinth, he gets a little bit more help. Paul and, I mean, Silas and Timothy show up. He begins to produce a little bit more fruit. 
And again, this is a great indicator that we need to take the long view in terms of evaluating ministry effectiveness. Though sometimes difficult to see immediate results, we need to go through slow seasons sometimes before seeing fruit fall into the basket. And that's okay, because God's called us to persevere. God's called us to be faithful to the mission. God's called us to just be proclaimers of his truth. It's his time and his way. But we could certainly ask the question again in the words of Winston Churchill, what kind of people are we? In the midst of a difficult time, a difficult season, socially, politically, economically, religiously, what kind of people are we? Are we the kind of people that are persevere? It's not gonna be pleasant. It's not gonna be easy. Victory doesn't come without blood, sweat, and tears. But God's called us to persevere in our gospel ministry. Look at the take home there. How, how do you persevere in gospel ministry in the midst of an immoral culture? Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't get overly frustrated. Be faithful. How are you being a witness for Christ both at work and with your words? Just think about, hey, if Paul was a tent maker and a minister of the gospel, maybe God's called me to have a little bit more of a bivocational emphasis, working hard with my hands and being ready to share Christ with my mouth. And then third, when you are reviled for sharing the gospel, how do you respond? Paul just kept going. They kicked him out of the synagogue. He went next door. They kick him out of one city, he goes to the next city. You get kicked out of one conversation, you go to the next conversation. You, you get shut down by one neighbor, you go to the next neighbor. Don't, don't give up. Don't get cynical, thinking, well, well, nobody wants to hear. You be faithful to persevere in the ministry God's given to you. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to encourage you today would be an opportunity for you to come to saving faith. Today would be an opportunity for you at the end of our service after we're all said and done. We have a few people standing right up here that would love to talk to you about how you could come to know Christ, how you could see Christ as the Christ who alone is able to save you from your sins and to give you life and life eternal. So if there's any way we can minister to you this morning after we're totally done with the Lord's table and finishing our last song, there'll be a few people here to serve you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be in a, a text like, like Acts 18, 1 through 8. It's an exciting study to see Paul continuing to preach that the Christ was Jesus. It's an exciting time to see how Aquila and Priscilla joined his, his effort there and the example they give of ministering together as a couple God, we're, we're encouraged that while he got kicked out of the synagogue, that there were others there next door who opened their, their hearts to the gospel and help us just to be faithful to persevere. Or we know that there'll be times when it, it seems like there's, there's just no fruit. And yet our, our responsibility is to be faithful. Our responsibility is to find our joy and the privilege of joining even in the sufferings of Christ. So I pray that you would be glorified as we, as we continue our mission and persevere in our opportunities, even this week, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.